Minoru Arakawa faced a problem. A huge problem. One in which the effects of his decision could ripple through the company for decades. One that could ruin one of the hottest franchises in the world. The year was 1986. Arakawa, the president of video game company Nintendo of America, was preparing for the upcoming release of the sequel to the blockbuster game Super Mario Bros. Released a year earlier, Super Mario Bros. immediately became a must-own game in the United States and turned its main characters into household names. The groundbreaking Nintendo video game console had exploded in popularity, and the company wanted to capitalize on the success with the next Mario game. However, the sequel game presented to Arakawa and made for Japanese gaming audiences was rife with issues. Its design was reminiscent of the first Super Mario Bros., but lacked any new characters and gameplay to differentiate it. Its levels were much harder than those of its predecessor, and Arakawa feared the degree of difficulty would turn off the average American player. Howard Phillips, Nintendo's warehouse manager and game tester, described playing the Japanese version of Super Mario Bros. 2 as the opposite of fun gameplay, and referred to the experience as punishment. Undeserved punishment. As a result, Arakawa decided not to release the Japanese version in the United States. He asked the design team to come up with a better alternative for American audiences. Around this time, the team that had developed Super Mario Bros. was working on a prototype for a game which featured vertically scrolling gameplay, basically constantly moving upward through a level instead of walking, running, and jumping through one that scrolled horizontally. However, due to the technological limits of the Nintendo console, moving a figure up through an entire board felt more like a gimmick than a fully realized game. Under the guidance of Super Mario's creator, Shigeru Miyamoto, the team tested incorporating some of the vertically scrolling gameplay into a mostly side-scrolling one. Although the prototype was not a Mario game, he aimed to make the overall feel something more Mario-like. In this prototype game, the object wasn't to stomp on creatures like the original Mario, but to jump on them, and to pick them up and throw them at other enemies. The worlds had a colorful and playful design to them, and the characters were able to uproot vegetables and keys, the latter which would open doors throughout the levels. This prototype, which carried elements of the original Super Mario Bros., became the 1987 Japanese game Yume Kojo Doki Doki Panic. That year, Fuji TV sponsored a Japanese take on the Brazilian festival Carnival, a multi-day cultural celebration of food, alcohol, music, and fun. Fuji TV called the celebration Yumi Kojo 87, and Nintendo used the Yumi Kojo mascots as the main characters in the Doki Doki Panic video game. But the game stood out to Arakawa. It resonated with the design team as its easy gameplay and whimsical nature made for an enjoyable, fulfilling experience. And it felt, in the words of Mario's creator Miyamoto, Mario-like. 
It had the potential to be the perfect sequel to Super Mario Bros. The team replaced the Yumi Kojo mascots with the familiar avatars of Mario, the high-jumping Luigi, the long-floating Princess Peach, and the quick and diminutive Toad. They altered levels and scenes to fit the Mario storyline, brought back Mario staples like the Starman for invincibility and coins and the iconic jump sounds, and prepared it for a 1988 release. The game was a creative departure from the original Super Mario Bros., but the essence was there. It felt fresh enough to encourage curiosity, but familiar enough for quick adoption and immersion among players. And it contained a finale sequence explaining its departure from the tight, formulaic structure of the original. For in the end, after defeating the final boss, Wart, Mario woke up from his sleep to find himself in bed, and that the events of the game were simply a dream. A fun, fantastical, and sometimes magical dream. In preparing a sequel, Arakawa and the designers at Nintendo chose not to make a clone of the original game. Instead, they built upon what worked, but created something unique a novel experience, and a new direction. Super Mario Bros. 2 was released in North America in October of 1988. Arakawa quickly learned he had made the right decision in revamping the game. It was an immediate hit, and was the top-selling video game in the United States for 14 consecutive months. It went on to become the fourth highest-selling video game of all time, for the Nintendo Entertainment System, as video gamers worldwide purchased nearly 7.5 million copies. In 2019, after its first successful HasLab campaign to produce a Star Wars sail barge, Hasbro was faced with a dilemma of its own. What would be its sequel? What would be its second offering? And would it build upon the success of the barge, or would it be a failure and possibly the final HasLab project for the franchise? This is the continuation of the decades-long story of Star Wars and Hasbro toys. This is the history of Hasbro's HasLab, the second Star Wars project. This is the next wild idea for a platform built upon producing wild ideas. This is, at its essence, the story of a relationship between a toy company and its fans. This is the way. This, this is, is the, the way. way. This is the way. And this is Star Wars Prototypes and Production. Stars, this will slip through your fingers. I want to 
use the Force and become a Jedi like my father. The Force will be with you. Always. In 2018, Hasbro introduced a revolutionary way for a toy company to deliver dream pieces to fans and collectors. HasLab, Hasbro's crowdfunding platform, created toys that were too large and too expensive or too niche to sell at retail. The company would offer a potential figure, playset, or vehicle, and if a specific number of pre-orders were purchased during the six-week campaign window, that toy would be put into production and would be shipped within the year. For fans, it was an opportunity to own an item that Hasbro would otherwise never consider making. It was a chance to finally bring home a ship or a playset that many dreamed about as children something that would fill in the gap of what was missing from the Star Wars toy universe. For Hasbro, HasLab created a new toy market at a larger price point, in a cost-efficient manner. After all, the company would only produce as many pieces as were ordered during the campaign, leaving no overstock. The toys would no longer languish on retail shelves, facing heavily marked discounts and resulting in severe company losses. The designers at Hasbro could be as creative and as far-reaching as they could imagine. With the heftier price points came the opportunity for richer and more accurate paint deco, as well as capturing every screen-accurate detail as possible. At the New York Toy Fair event in February of 2018, Hasbro announced its intentions with the HasLab platform. It also unveiled the first HasLab offering, Jabba's colossal sail barge, known as the Katana from the 1983 film Return of the Jedi. The Katana would be part of the vintage collection, Hasbro's premium 3 3 quarter inch Star Wars figure line, which returned to production in 2018. It would also be the largest Star Wars toy ever produced for that scale. Coming in at a little over four feet in length, the barge was truly worthy of being Hasbro's first HasLab project. In order to reach production, fans had to order a minimum total of 5,000 sail barges by April 3rd, six weeks after the campaign began. And while the campaign spurred excitement, its fate was in the hands of consumers. In fact, many doubters believe the first HasLab project would also be the last. They cited the $500 price tag for each barge as a deterrent, and simply believed there wouldn't be enough long-term interest generated by collectors to successfully back the barge. But with a few days remaining in the campaign, Star Wars fans pulled the barge across the finish line. And by the deadline, more than 8,800 katanas were purchased. In February of 2019, Hasbro began shipping the sail barges to those who placed orders a year earlier. And since then, the katana has become one of the most desirable Star Wars collectibles in the modern era. The price of a sail barge has quadrupled in value as those who missed out on the initial campaign clamored for ones on the secondary market. The barge has become a beloved and spotlight-worthy piece in many home collections. Fans have filled their barges with an assortment of skiff guards and denizens of Jabba's palace, recreating the scenes from Return of the Jedi. 
The work that designers Steve Evans, Mark Boudreau, and the rest of the Hasbro team did is not lost on any of us. Each component, from the wall decorations to the layout of the interior, helps to make the barge feel accurate and special. Together, those details and designs spark our imaginations and help to bring this massive vehicle to life. The first HasLab project was a success, a joyous offering that showcased the potential of a relationship between a toy company and its consumers. Evans described the experience of the campaign as a perfect 45-day roller coaster ride, noting how emotional and satisfying it was for him and for the Hasbro team tasked with designing and delivering the barge. And it was clear the fans felt the same way. The sail barge would also be Mark Boudreau's final large-scale project in his role as senior principal designer at Hasbro. Boudreau had worked on Star Wars toys for more than 40 years, and had helped create every iteration of the Millennium Falcon released by Kenner and Hasbro. The barge was a fitting farewell for Boudreau. His work on the barge signaled an exciting shift in Hasbro's scope and reach. Through the HasLab project, he became an integral part of a team designated with the task of carving a new path for the toy company's future. In March of 2020, as Boudreau announced his retirement, Hasbro hired Chris Reif to become the associate principal product designer for its Star Wars division. Reif was well-versed in the Star Wars universe, having worked professionally on the brand as an illustrator and designer for the past 25 years. He began his Star Wars journey at toy design firm Soda Inc., working with Jim Swearingen and other former Kenner designers. Reif helped to design the Riddle miniature replica helmets released in the 1990s. From there, he illustrated pieces for Lucasfilm-related promotional events like Star Wars Celebration, designed the packaging art for Hasbro's Star Wars toys, and created heavily detailed owner's manuals for some of the Star Wars ships, which explored every aspect of the Millennium Falcon, a TIE fighter, and others. When it came to Star Wars, Reif had the knowledge as well as the technical and artistic ability to work within that universe and to translate fantastical concepts into real-world designs, which was required on some of the more demanding Hasbro toy projects. And when he arrived at Hasbro as the associate principal product designer, he was presented with a mighty challenge to help create the next HasLab Star Wars project to match and possibly exceed the excitement for the first offering, Jabba's Sail Barge, to be the maestro conducting another Star Wars symphony, and at its core, to continue the time-honored tradition of turning intangible on-screen moments into tangible souvenirs for Star Wars fans. But what would be the next project? which previously unreleased item would finally find form as a Star Wars toy.
Join me, Jackie Jennings, and all your favorite brands September 25th and 26th at Hasbro PulseCon. You do not want to miss this. In 2017, Hasbro hosted HasCon, its first convention dedicated to its slate of toy lines. The convention was held in Providence, Rhode Island, and featured panels, brand experiences, and concerts. Fans and families were also able to meet notable celebrities like actor Mark Wahlberg and Marvel Comics legend Stan Lee. And for collectors, HasCon offered some desirable convention-exclusive toy releases, like the 6-inch Black Series Clone Captain Rex Deluxe figure. The next HasCon was planned for September of 2019, but was unfortunately postponed. Fans speculated that a downturn in sales for the year and the location of the convention may have diminished interest in attendance. But it seemed likely that Hasbro would rework the event to meet fans' needs and to deliver the best possible experience at a later date. However, the pandemic changed any plans for an in-person event the following year. In September of 2020, though, Hasbro rebooted HasCon, transforming it into a two-day virtual convention and renamed it PulseCon. PulseCon took place on September 25th and 26th, with each day's series of panels ending with a live musical performance. The Star Wars segment of PulseCon took place on the first day and featured three panels— the first showcased new releases from the Black Series and the Vintage Collection. The final Star Wars panel celebrated the Clone Wars Season 7 release. But the one in between them was one of the most anticipated panels of the entire weekend. It centered around the next Star Wars HasLab project, hosted by members of Hasbro's marketing and design teams. Leading up to the event, rumors fluttered across social media conversations. Collectors wondered if Hasbro would create another vehicle from the original trilogy, like a Jawa Sandcrawler or the Rebel Blockade Runner where Darth Vader first captured Princess Leia. Another possibility was a Dagobah playset with Yoda's hut and an X-Wing that magically lifted out of the surrounding swamp. Amid the swirling chatter, there seemed to be one item— one vehicle from a recent Star Wars hit series that seemed to make the most sense. One that was quickly becoming an iconic symbol of the latest story to capture the hearts of fans of all ages. One that would appeal to both vintage and modern collectors, because the series was a modern one that harkened back to the original trilogy era. On September 25th, fans tuned in to Hasbro's online Pulse livestream to find out what the next HasLab project would be. The Star Wars HasLab panel was hosted by Patrick Schneider, Hasbro's global marketing director. Joined by Chris Reif and Lucasfilm's senior product development manager, Chris Dern, Schneider introduced the team and the accompanying anticipated video announcement. Uh, 
love hearing that music uh, teeing us up on each segment. Uh, so great to be back with you. Uh, I'm here with Chris Reif uh, from our design team uh, and Chris Dern again from Lucasfilm. Again, uh, my name's Patrick. I'm on our Hasbro uh, marketing team. Uh, let's keep the magic going. Let's keep this excitement going. So it's going to be great. We are launching our next Star Wars HasLab campaign. Uh, so we told you guys about this about three months ago, I believe in June. Uh, the only thing you know is that it's going to be a vintage collection item, uh, but it's going to be revealed today. And, you know, in like five to ten minutes, you'll know what it is. Uh, the campaign will be live. It's going to be amazing. Uh, and we're so excited to, to take you guys through it. Uh, but you guys came here for the big reveal, the big new information, months of speculation and wondering. And now let's roll that film and tell the fans what it is. Under a sprawling music score, images of the Razor Crest, the chrome twin-engine ship from the Disney Plus series The Mandalorian, filled the screen. After more than a year of waiting, Star Wars fans were finally getting a Razor Crest. The video showed clips of the ship in action from the show, as well as digital renderings of the HasLab toy and the different features planned for it. We're, we're so excited. We hope you're excited. Uh, we're going to talk about this. Uh, Chris Reif and then Chris Dern, do you guys want to talk about kind of the journey that uh, led us to this item? Yeah, absolutely. This has been so exciting to work on. And everyone out there is clearly as excited about the new Star Wars HasLab as we were. I mean, when we just teased it, all this crazy speculation that was happening, it was awesome. Yeah. I mean, some of those ideas you guys were throwing out were things we had tossed around ourselves, but it, it kind of made itself clear what the next HasLab should be to us when we saw that season one Mandalorian stuff happening. And, and Chris, you can probably talk to that even a little better than I can. The amazing thing about it is it's simply going from the barge, going to this, you know, uh, working on this for several months, like you pointed out, Chris, it's really fun to share now with the fans <laughs> you know, what we've been working on and the excitement behind it. So, I, I mean, I'm just, I'm just thrilled that we can actually talk about it and share the details and really continue Mark's legacy. We've all had the chance to work with Mark over the many years and, and continue his visions and his vehicles and his expectations with detail into the vehicles that we worked on him with in the past. So it's, it's always going to, to Vicki's point earlier, it's always going to have a little bit of Mark and all of these things that we work on. As with the previous HasLab project, the website to pre-order the Razorcrest went live immediately. The campaign would take place over the course of the next six weeks and would conclude at 11.59 p.m. on Monday, November 9th. The Razorcrest campaign was very similar to the barge rollout, but with two noted differences. First, the amount of pre-orders needed to fund the Razorcrest into production was raised from 5000 to 6000 And the second was the price. Consumers paid $500 for each four-foot-long barge in 2018. The cost of the Razorcrest was $350, and backers could order a maximum of five ships per transaction. The Pulse website gave an overview of what backers would be funding in the latest HasLab project, including the vehicle's size and specifications. Like the barge, the Razor Crest was created for the 3 and 3 quarter inch vintage collection toy line. It stretched 30 inches in length and stood almost 11 inches high. 
With the ship's two cylindrical wing engines, it measured almost two feet in width, making it one of the largest vintage collection vehicles ever made. And, and Chris Reif, can you tell us a bit about the detail we're seeing here? Uh, yeah, it is, it is insanely detailed. I mean, the just panel lines and missing pieces and everything else, this thing, this thing is the toy that I wanted. And it's, it's in no small part due to our partnership with Lucasfilm. And Chris can lead us into that a little bit, but the, just the assets that we were able to get and that ILM and Lucasfilm worked with us really close to make this thing happen. So, yeah, we were, we were really fortunate. Industrial Lights and Magic provided the, the working 3D files of this vehicle and they were to scale. So we had a little, we had some challenges to get it down to our three and three quarter inch uh, scale. So there's a lot of considerations that had to go into, into play, but great resources for this item. Uh, it, it was, it's been fantastic working with our image unit team, working with our filmmakers to really make this happen and, and capture a, a whole new level of detail in vehicle. To better understand why both the Hasbro team and Star Wars fans were excited about the HasLab Razorcrest, let's take a look at the origin of the Razorcrest and how the Mandalorian reinvigorated a Star Wars fan base. On September 25th, 2017, exactly three years prior to Hasbro's Razorcrest announcement at PulseCon, Lucasfilm president Kathleen Kennedy contacted filmmaker Jon Favreau about creating a new series for Disney's future streaming service. Favreau, who had voiced a Mandalorian named Pre Vizsla for the series The Clone Wars, pitched a Western-style series about a lone Mandalorian who stumbles upon a child he must protect. Kennedy paired Favreau with his friend Dave Filoni, who had created shows like The Clone Wars and Star Wars Rebels for Lucasfilm, and was also interested in pursuing a story about the history of the Mandalorians. Two months later, they began to develop the main elements of the new series. And as the duo crafted the story, a design team worked on creating the protagonist's ship. Design supervisor Doug Chang shared the initial vision for the Razorcrest and how it was influenced by a U.S. military plane. One of the most exciting things that we're creating for the Mandalorian is a new spaceship. And John had a really distinct idea of what he wanted. He wanted an army surplus vehicle, a vehicle that perhaps predates the X-Wings. And so the first goal was really find what is that simple shape that worked really well. One of John's favorite aircrafts is the A-10 Warthog. And I really like that aircraft because it's very distinct with these two giant engines on the rear end. And so we took that as the starting guideline. And the idea was that this was going to be a very early spaceship. And so we wanted to lean towards sort of World War II aesthetics. The A-10 Thunderbolt was a United States military plane produced in the 1970s and used during Operation Desert Storm. It was nicknamed the A-10 Warthog because of the animal-like face and teeth painted on the nose of the plane. The plane was a grayish-blue in color, and the cockpit was flanked by two large cylindrical engines positioned between the wings and the tail. Looking at the A-10, it's easy to see why this design appealed to Favreau and the Lucasfilm team. If you remove the wings, you have something that is both reminiscent of ships from the Second World War, as well as something that recalls the Republic gunships of the Clone Wars. 
its unique silhouette makes it instantly recognizable. In other words, it was the perfect starting point for a Star Wars vessel. The goal was to make the Razor Crest fit in with the lived-in world George Lucas created. The ship was bulked up, including the cylindrical engines, which were fitted onto the edges of the crest's raised wings. The exterior of the ship resembled an aluminum shell, one that had seen years, if not decades, of use and wear. Soon after Favreau, Chang, and the team began work on the series, ILM Chief Creative Officer John Knoll joined the meetings. He and visual effects supervisor Richard Bluff toyed with the idea of building a physical model of the crest, one large enough to use to create shots for the series. You're trying to strike the right balance between um, scale, you know, having enough detail in the model to have uh, it hold up close enough to camera, but to be able to make the shots dynamic enough that we could get far enough away from it at the far end of the track travel to get sufficient speed and range. It looked like around between 18 inches and, and 24 inches was a good sort of sweet spot. The miniature gave Noel a chance to channel the early creativity at ILM before computers and digital effects became the norm for fantasy flight sequences. The ILM team was able to keep the entire process of making the Razorcrest fly in-house. As the designers built the model and the team filmed a motion-controlled test flight sequence. Favreau shared the same optimism for the flight sequence and asked the team to produce a series of polished shots in time for the Mandalorian first look panel at Celebration Chicago. You know, coming from visual effects from way back when we were doing miniatures all the way to the transition to digital, and now we're given an opportunity to actually work on a miniature, it was just mind-blowing. April 2019, Star Wars Celebration Chicago. Celebration is the premier convention for Star Wars fans. Each celebration is filled with panels showcasing upcoming films, stories, and series within the Star Wars universe. And at Celebration Chicago, attendees were treated to a first look at Disney Plus's first live-action streaming show, The Mandalorian. Favreau and Filoni hosted the panel and were joined by the series' main cast. But one of the highlights was a behind-the-scenes video package that showcased the ILM shots of the Razorcrest in flight. The team had managed to successfully create a motion-controlled shoot and delivered a jaw-dropping preview of the Razorcrest that helped to give fans an idea of the wildly imaginative scope of the new show. John Favreau was adamant that this felt like old school Star Wars. Everybody was all hands on deck. We were just trying to create the most incredible imagery on the screen as possible. And at celebration, in front of a ravenous crowd eager for the next chapter of the Star Wars story, Favreau and Filoni premiered the Razor Crest footage for the first time. <laughs> so we were, part, part of what we did uh, is, it's the first time we ever have filmed uh, Star Wars in Los Angeles, and I think mm. even in the United States. And so part of what made that possible was a lot of new cutting edge technology using stuff that I've learned from Iron Man, Jungle Book, even, even Lion King about game <laughs> engine, thank you. Uh, using all this new cutting edge game engine technology, video walls, uh, VR for planning, 
but Star Wars at its core is a, is, has to feel handmade and like a practical show. And so we have a lot of audio animatronics and puppetry, all the techniques that were used from the beginning. And, and so what, what was interesting was when we were starting to plan the, uh, the, the name of the ship is the Razor Crest that the Mandalorian flies around in. <laughs> and it's this really cool, I think you saw some uh, pictures of it in that, in that reel. It's sort of like a reflective silver uh, old army surplus um, gunship. gunship. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then, you're not the only Star Wars fans. Up at ILM, yes. there's a lot of Star Wars fans too, and people started coming out of the woodwork when they heard that we were doing <laughs> yes. this. It, it, it's just, it's hard to, it's hard it to imagine. It was like the, it's, it was like the Star Wars club at, at a high school. Yeah, we were all, it really was. We were all, and so we, uh, up at ILM, they shot some behind the scenes footage of what's going on up there, and we'll just kind of talk you through it. Do you want to roll that? And this is something uh, you can, yeah. not, as, not as secret. Because you have to see it to Yeah, you can it. see this. It's, so we'll roll this while we're in here. Maybe we'll dim the lights a little bit. That day, Star Wars fans witnessed the Razor Crest's first public flight. The shot that ILM put together demonstrated the impact that models and miniatures would have on an ambitious show like The Mandalorian. And the buzz for the show continued until its premiere, seven months later. Alright, All right, we're going to leave and go finish. <laughs> we got to finish that. Lot so, to do. We got to get out of here. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you so much. The first season of The Mandalorian premiered on November 12, 2019, and was an instant hit. It captured the essence and the magic of the original trilogy, and introduced fans to new characters, like the titular Mandalorian bounty hunter, a blue-skinned creature named Mithral, Grief Karga, who was the head of the Bounty Hunters Guild, and an assassin droid named IG-11. And the biggest reveal was a green, baby Yoda-like character known as The Child. The Mandalorian became the most watched streaming show in the world that December. It was later nominated for a Primetime Emmy and won seven Creative Arts Emmys for the first season. It propelled audiences to subscribe to Disney's streaming service, and the number of subscribers is estimated to have reached 24 million by the first month massively outperforming the company's estimates for the quarter. The first season of The Mandalorian reportedly cost more than $100 million to make, but it sparked a billion-dollar consumer buying frenzy. Fans clamored for shirts, posters, toys, anything they could get their hands on that bore the show's logo or characters. They wanted The Mandalorian. They wanted The Child. And they wanted... A razor crest. On September 25th, 2020, the HasLab Razor Crest pre order page went live and gave potential backers a comprehensive presentation about the toy and the campaign. 
but arguably the most important information answered the simple question, why? In a segment titled Star Wars Returns to HasLab, Hasbro laid out the reason behind its choice to make the Razorcrest the next Star Wars project. Hasbro wrote, In 2018, we launched HasLab with a dream. To make something fans had been requesting for years, Jabba's sail barge, the Katana, the biggest vintage collection vehicle yet. And thanks to the fans, thanks to you, we did it. Now we're back at HasLab with another dream project, and we need your help again to make it happen. After the success of the barge, the team spent some time thinking about the best product to follow up. We thought about dipping back into the original trilogy, or maybe making something from the latest movie entertainment. But time and time again, we came back to something that was right there, on our TV, tablet, and laptop screens. Star Wars The Mandalorian introduced a ship that quickly became an iconic part of the Mandalorian lore. It already has more Star Wars screen time than any ship besides the Millennium Falcon, and was the centerpiece of some of the most memorable scenes in the series. The more we talked about it, the more we appreciated the arc of that story. So much of The Mandalorian is inspired by the original Star Wars trilogy, and choosing something from the series resembles a passing of the torch, from classic to new, from movies to streaming, and from one designer to another. The Hasbro Star Wars team wants to make a vintage-scale Razorcrest, and we want to do it justice. With your help, we can. And with the answer to the question why, coupled with many other pieces of information, the fate of the campaign, the fate of the tireless work done by Hasbro's Star Wars team, now rested in the hands of the fans. Surely, interest in the Mandalorian series was evidently strong. But would that excitement for what appeared on screen translate into a desire to own the vintage collection Razorcrest vehicle? Would collectors purchase the required 6,000 crests over the next 45 days before the campaign ended on November 9th? Would the Razorcrest join Jabba's sail barge as a HasLab success story in the era of modern Star Wars toys? Or would it be remembered as the first Star Wars project to fail to be funded? campaign was off to a rocky start. Technical issues plagued the Pulse site during the first few hours after going live, and backers were unable to complete their purchases. But within a few hours, the issues were fixed, and more than 3,000 Razorcrests had been pre-ordered. A few hours later, the count reached a total of 4,000 Razorcrests. And by the next day, the total jumped up and crossed the 6,000 order mark. The second Star Wars HasLab project was fully funded, 
the Razor Crest would be produced. With 44 days left in the campaign, the question Hasbro now wondered was how many of the Mandalorian ships would be ordered. The Hasbro team was relieved it had reached its minimum so quickly. And anticipating the potential for a record-breaking pre-order run, the team was ready to unveil a series of stretch goals, items related to the Razorcrest, such as parts and figures that would be unlocked and included with each purchase once the total amount of pre-orders hit a certain targeted number. The first stretch goal was announced on September 27th, as soon as the crest crossed the 6,000 backer mark. Reaching a benchmark number of backers afforded the designers to expand the Razor Crest budget and to add elements that wouldn't be included otherwise. And to Chris Reif, the first edition was an important one, a removable escape pod. It would be unlocked at 8,000 pre-orders. If the Razor Crest had failed to meet its first stretch goal, Reif would have been forced to leave the top panel of the back of the ship as a single piece of molded plastic meaning fans would have seen the detail of where the escape pod would sit within the ship, but would not have access to it. Instead, the team added a panel to the updated Razor Crest that could be lifted to reveal a detachable escape pod that would hold a single figure. Hasbro included the escape pod within the Razor Crest based on the Lucasfilm team's ship schematics. Doug Chang shared a story about its origins leading into the series. He said that the team showed Favreau a detailed exterior model of the Razor Crest, and Favreau inquired about the removable panel on top of the ship. When the team explained it was an escape pod, Favreau said, Well, we don't have a scene for that. Let's just finish it anyway, because we may eventually. Two days later, the total reached 8,000 pre-orders, and to Chris Reif's relief, the first stretch goal became an official addition to the Razor Crest. The second stretch goal was announced and would surely grab the attention of anyone interested in the little character that stole the hearts of fans around the world. If the campaign hit a total of 10,000 backers, Hasbro would include its first exclusive carded figure into the package. It was the Baby Yoda-like figure then known as the Child. The Child came with his hover pram, which was decked out in a chrome plating, similar to what Kenner did with R2-D2's dome. A little more than a week later, the second stretch goal was reached, and the Child became part of the pre-order. On October 13th, Hasbro announced the third stretch goal, which would be unlocked at 13,000 pre-orders. It consisted of four carbonite blocks from the Razor Crest carbon freezing chamber. Each block contained a character caught by the Mandalorian bounty hunter. The first was a Corellian smuggler named Rick Duell, who appeared in the non-canon Star Wars comics and was modeled after famed visual effects master Rick Baker. The second was a Rodian creature, similar to Greedo, named Cheeto. And the third was Danny, a female Zeltron adventurer. All three were part of a gang in the 1980s Marvel comics. The fourth Frozen figure was recognizable to anyone familiar with the memorable first episode of The Mandalorian. 
Mithral, the blue-skinned, gill-faced alien, was captured by the Mandalorian and was brought into the Razor Crest, where he was thrown into the carbon chamber and frozen in perfect hibernation, so he could be returned to the one offering a bounty for him. The carbonite blocks were a feature fans hoped Hasbro would include with the Razor Crest. And by making them part of a stretch goal with a very good possibility of being unlocked in the near future, Hasbro demonstrated its commitment to creating toys that met collectors' reasonable and understandable expectations. And even if the third stretch goal wasn't reached, Chris Reif had hinted in an interview that the company would eventually find a way to release the carbonite blocks that would be compatible with the ship. I'm sure you're seeing a pattern here, but the carbonite blocks were officially added to the Razor Crest when the total pre-orders hit 13,000 two weeks later. And at the end of October, the final two stretch goals were announced. The fourth, which would be activated at 15,000 pre-orders, was a clear display stand with the Mandalorian logo etched into the base. With a Razor Crest mounted on it, the stand gives the illusion of the vehicle being in mid-flight. And the fifth and final stretch goal would be another exclusive carded figure. It featured an off-world Jawa Elder, one of the creatures that stripped the Razor Crest of its parts in the second episode, and would only return them if the bounty hunter retrieved a special Mudhorn Egg. The off-world Jawa Elder would eventually be released at retail stores, but this version came with an exclusive Kukri knife, necklace, open Mudhorn Egg, and card back. This final stretch goal would be unlocked at 17,000 pre-orders. Now that you know the history of the campaign and its stretch goals up to this point, and before we head into the final week of the campaign, I'd like to take you on a tour of the Razor Crest. In order for us to tour the Razor Crest, I have to shrink us down. So we'll just stand over here together, right over the HasLab Razor Crest, and that way we'll fall into the open cockpit. I'll press the button on the remote, the beam will hit us, and we'll be miniaturized to roughly the same height as a vintage collection figure. Here we go! It worked! I mean, I knew it would work. I've done this before. I, I, I've done this before. But not like this. We are in the actual cockpit of the Razor Crest with the Mandalorian. Who are you? We're really big fans of yours. Uh, and we're in the guild. How long have you been with the guild? We're, um, we're very recent additions. But we're definitely bounty hunters. And this one over here is a Mandalorian, too. This is the way. This is the way. So the Mandalorian's name is Din Djarin. The figure that comes with the Razor Crest is exclusive to the HasLab project and comes with a special soft goods cape. With the soft goods cape, Din is able to sit in his pilot's chair, which is a silver color with red painted leather accents. The cockpit's walls are a light gray base overlaid with a molded steel blue plastic. The canopy above our heads is a gray frame with clear plastic windows. The flight console looks pretty accurate when compared to its on-screen counterpart. 
in front of the Mandalorian are a pair of joystick-like steering handles. It even has the handlebar-style throttles that allow him to maneuver deftly during combat or when he is trying to outrun New Republic troopers Trapper Wolf and Captain Carson Teva. And immediately, you can see the thought that went into creating the Razorcrest. One of the controls on the console is even missing the little silver joystick-like ball that fits on the top. Just like in the series, where the child would always remove... It's the child! (laughs) Well, we now know him as Grogu. But for a long time, we all called him Baby Yoda, because he resembles the old Jedi Master. And this is the exclusive Grogu that comes with accessories, including a silver knob that fits onto the console. He loves that thing, so I'm not even going to ask him if we can see it right now. And he has his cup from which he drinks his broth. In the cockpit, there are two seats directly behind us on either side of the center door that leads to the back of the ship. On the toy, the door does not open, which would have been a nice feature. Grogu's exclusive vac-metalized pram is currently resting on one of the chairs, with Grogu sitting in it. The large laser cannons on either side of the cockpit's hull rotate to target and to fire at any incoming aircrafts or creatures. At any sign of danger, really. I've always wanted to fire the cannons, though. I think I'm going to try it. Whoa! Get away from it! It's not a toy. I'm sorry, Mando. I I shouldn't have done that. I was just curious. We'll get out of your way now. Uh, So that's a tour of the cockpit. What's that sound? What's wrong? Great. Jawas. Jawas? Ooh. Yes, it looks like Jawas are removing panels from your ship. These are my parts. My ship has been destroyed. Stay down. Din, you have to stop them before they dismantle the hull. We'll stay here with Grogu. How do I know I can trust you? Because we love the little guy. And we know you'd shoot us if anything happened to him. We have him, and he's safe and sound with us. And I dropped him. Unbelievable. That was my fault. A billion dollar property, and I dropped it. Come here, little guy. We got him. Okay. Now listen, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to look around. It shouldn't take too long. Now, don't touch anything. We won't. I'll man the cannons, and I'll scare them with a little laser fire. Just keep them away from my ship. Will do, Mando. Would you mind holding Grogu for a second? What's he doing? He has his little arm in the air, hand extended. It looks like he's using the force. I wonder what he's trying to lift. Oh, it's us. He's lifting us out of the cockpit. Just hold on to that pram. Stay here with Grogu. I'm going to try to stop this. Hey, Jawas. This is the Mandalorian. Remember him? He defeated the Mudhorn for you and brought you the egg with the goop that you all love. Stop trying to steal parts from the ship. Thank you. Hey, look. It's the off-world Jawa Elder. And here he comes with the mudhorn egg and the necklace he's wearing. Who, me? Sure, I'll take a taste of the egg. I always wondered how it tasted. Looks pretty good. Mmm, mmm, that's 
It's delicious. Uh, thank you, kind elder. It's horrible. It tastes like a mix between mangoes and rubber cement. And it has a pepperoni aftertaste. While the Jawas are helping our Mandalorian friend fix his ship, let's take a look at it. From my estimate, there are approximately 15 external panels that can be removed. The hull of the ship is covered in a brushed aluminum design that has been painted to look weathered and worn. This feels like a ship that has taken part in many adventures over the years. The areas where the panels have been removed reveal a steel blue frame that matches the interior of the cockpit. From the right side of the ship, you can see through parts of this frame and into the crest's interior. The crest has three landing gear feet that can be removed when displaying it in flight. This'll do fine. Thank you. That's very kind. On the left side of the Razor Crest is a hatch that opens for boarding. The hatch descends and a ramp extends from the top of it to form a step. And like the HasLab sail barge, a large panel that runs along the side of the ship can be removed, giving a collector a fuller view inside the cargo hold. Let's board the ship. There's a lot of space in this vehicle. When the team filmed the episode where Mando transports creatures named Blurgs, they figured out that the Razor Crest could hold three of these large creatures pretty comfortably. To our left, as we walk toward the front of the ship, we see Mithril? This feels a lot better. I haven't evacuated since the solstice. Were you just using the refresher? Yeah. A refresher is a toilet in the Star Wars universe. And since that universe is home to many, many different creatures, the Refresher has a number of adapters, funnels, and specialty attachments to support the different species that may travel aboard the Razor Crest. And the Hasbro designers made sure to make this Refresher as screen accurate as possible. Oh, Mithril, be careful what you touch around here. I think you're standing in the carbon freezing... chamber. Oh well, Mando is probably going to freeze him anyway. Here, help me pick up our frozen friend and let's hang him up. The HasLab Razor Crest has four movable hooks on a track that hangs from the ceiling. You can hang one of the four included carbonite blocks on a hook and you can maneuver it to travel from the chamber along the length of the ship and each block can be positioned to exit through the back hatch. Against the wall and to the left of the carbon freezing chamber is Din's armory. The tall cabinet door is open to reveal a weapon stash of 16 blasters and rifles. The Hasbro team screen matched every one of them to ensure accuracy, and each one was made to fit into the vintage collection figure's hands. I like this white blaster with the brown handle. You don't usually see blasters like this in the Star Wars universe. Hey, check it out. I'm the Mandalorian. I can bring you in warm, or I can bring you in... <laughs> Sorry. Easy. I'm putting the blaster away now. Let's close up the armory now. At least we know everything works. This little guy is probably getting tired. Here, let's put him in his sleeping quarters. The cabinet next to the armory opens to reveal a tiny hammock and we can place him inside of it. 
We'll close the door to give him a little peace and quiet before his next adventures. See you soon, little one. Sorry I dropped you before. May the force be with you. Under Grogu's quarters is another cabinet. It's a small storage space for accessories or containers. We can walk out through the back of the ship. On our left is a cargo net to store more accessories. The ship also comes with a group of backpacks and bags that can be hung on small hooks along the interior side walls. The back hatch opens and a ramp is released. Mando, do you need any help? I appreciate the offer. It's very thoughtful of you. Could I possibly borrow your jetpack? Are you out of your mind? I could use a crew member of your ability. I almost got us killed and we weren't even in the air yet. Please, I give you my word. I'll return it to you. But we really need it if we're going to get home. Fine. Thank you so much. Grogu is sleeping in the Razor Crest. I promise I'll drop the jetpack off to you. This is the way. This is the way. Okay, just hold on tight. We're going for a ride. We're on the roof of the Razor Crest toward the middle of the ship. Here you can see the escape pod underneath our feet. Okay, ready? When we get high enough in the air to be in line with the shrinking ray, I'm going to hit the button on the remote that will reverse the beam and will bring us back to our original heights again. Here we go. We did it! That was quite the tour. I hope you learned a little more about the Razor Crest. And now I'm going to keep a promise to our new friend. I'm going to shrink the jetpack. And I'll just place it back into the cockpit of the Razor Crest. Thanks again, Mando. By November 2nd, the amount of pre-orders passed the 15,000 mark, unlocking the fourth stretch goal and giving backers a display stand. A few days later, Hasbro hosted a roundtable livestream with an update on the campaign by Chris Reif and Patrick Schneider. Schneider discussed the inclusion of international markets during the campaign, which was a first for the HasLab Star Wars offering. This year, we've, we've been super excited, honestly. Like, the international, uh, you know, uh, backers for the Razor Crest have been a significant portion. And we're, I've seen some speculation online. We're adding those in. Uh, and we've done that intentionally. Uh, EU fans uh, out there and Mexico fans, they helped us back the Razor Crest. Like, we made sure to add those in. And so, EU fans out there, if you backed it before it hit 6,000, you're, you're part of why the Razor Crest got made. Um, so, at this point... It's live throughout the EU through Zavi. It's live in Mexico, Peru, 
several markets in Asia, in Australia, New Zealand. So uh, we've been able to work off some some great work done by other Hasbro brands to kind of build up, and we've certainly built as well. But at this point, it's widely available globally, uh, and we're seeing great fan response. And so November 9th is the deadline for everyone in every country. We're, we're not doing that international thing after because we're doing it now. And Rife shared what it was like to work on the project. I think it it's largely attributed to the kind of current entertainment and just kind of the overall excitement about The Mandalorian. But, I mean, we really did try and deliver above and beyond on what we were doing with it, too. So, I mean, I know, like, you guys can see, like, I've, I've got a barge sitting here behind me, and I kept <laughs> referencing it constantly during that project. But it was anytime that we were wondering whether we should or shouldn't add a feature, we tended to add the feature. So, and I, I think that showed through, and I think people fans responded to that well. During a Hasbro Q&A session, the collecting site Bantha Skull asked if the success of the Razorcrest gave Hasbro a sense of confidence to increase its investment in the fan-favorite vintage collection line. Schneider responded, We have learned more about the market demand for the vintage collection, and the success of the Razorcrest campaign is just another pillar in that support. The Razorcrest campaign has been phenomenal, Let's not undersell it. The fact that it hit its backer goal in 26 hours, the fact that it's north of 16,000 backers right now, with still five days left to go, has made us so excited and so blown away by its success. It's certainly more evidence in favor of the fact that there is a passionate group of vintage fans out there. We've said before that we've got a bit coming for the vintage collection in 2021 and beyond. That's still true, and maybe even more so. We're excited about the future for the Vintage Collection, and we hope you guys are as well. <laughs> On November 6th, three days before the end of the campaign, the total number of pre-orders crossed 17,000, unlocking the fifth and final stretch goal. The carded off-world Jawa Elder was officially added to the Razorcrest package. In total, Hasbro's offering would contain Din Djarin with an exclusive soft goods cape, the removable escape pod, a carded version of the child with a unique decoed pram, four carbonite blocks, a stand on which to mount the Razorcrest, and the carded off-world Jawa Elder figure with extra accessories. For many, the complete package was too good of an offer to pass up, especially for $350. By the time the campaign reached its conclusion on November 9th, how many Razorcrests do you think were pre-ordered? Was it more than 18,000? Was it more than 20,000? More than 22,000? The total number of crests pre-orders hit 28,115. That was three times as many barges sold, and it broke the previous record for backers held by the Marvel Sentinel figure by almost 7,000 orders. The second Star Wars HasLab campaign had been an absolute success. In an interview with StarWars.com, Rife reflected on the momentum and the overwhelming interest, saying... Like the rest of the world, we all fell in love with the world of the Mandalorian upon seeing that first episode. 
We knew we had to create the Razor Crest, and doing it as a HasLab project let us work toward the large and detailed vintage collection piece we all wanted. Mark Boudreau and the team certainly set the bar pretty high for us with Jabba's sail barge. That was an intimidating project to follow. I looked to that vehicle and its level of detail for a lot of guidance and inspiration. I think we've done that legacy justice and delivered beyond expectations for our Razorcrest. It was also a financial win for the company. With 28,115 orders at $350 each, the revenue grossed from the Razorcrest project equated to more than $9.8 million. And most importantly, it was a win for fans of all ages. For those who grew up with the original trilogy or the prequels and were now watching The Mandalorian with their children. For those to whom the characters and life lessons of Star Wars spoke loudly and in a meaningful way. For those to whom the Razorcrest was a symbol of the excitement, vibrancy, and imagination of the current Star Wars stories. For those who in one month would see that beloved Razorcrest completely obliterated. The sixth episode of the second season of The Mandalorian aired almost a month after the Razorcrest campaign had ended. Titled The Tragedy, the episode raised the stakes of the series. The villainous Moff Gideon sent his nearly unstoppable Dark Trooper droids to the planet of Tython. The Dark Troopers find the child, now revealed to be named Grogu, and they kidnap him before Din Djarin, the Mandalorian, is able to stop them and Moff Gideon's ship fires a laser blast at the planet, destroying the Razorcrest. Better get to your ship. I don't know what went through your mind as you watched that scene, but after the initial shock wore off, I thought to myself, Razorcrest backers are going to be so angry. And I was correct initially. Some fans were upset with Hasbro and accused them of deliberately selling a toy that would be rendered obsolete a month after it was funded. I do not claim to understand the inner workings of the relationship between Lucasfilm and Hasbro. But I doubt Favreau and Filoni decided to blow up the Razorcrest before the HasLab team began working on turning the ship into a toy. And Lucasfilm keeps its characters and storylines a secret from almost everyone, leading up to the premiere of a series or an episode. It's the reason why we didn't get a Luke Skywalker figure from The Force Awakens until more than a year after the film was released. Again, I don't know how much Hasbro knows in advance about a series like The Mandalorian. Rife mentioned that he and the team watch each episode the morning it's released, and likely to see what projects may be waiting for them in the future. But even if the team did know the Razorcrest would be destroyed in the second season, I'm assuming it was very late in the process. But at the same time, 
It didn't really matter if the Razorcrest suffered the same fate as Leia's home planet of Alderaan in the original Star Wars film. Fans would have surely wanted more on-screen adventures with the Razorcrest, especially knowing they would own a miniature model of it one day. But regardless of its fate, we all still love the Crest because it was part of the series we loved. It had become a character within the world Filoni and Favreau created. What Rife and the designers at Hasbro had faithfully replicated. And now, it was ours. When Darth Vader and Yoda died in Return of the Jedi, children didn't throw their figures away. And they certainly did not stop creating stories with them on the floors of their playrooms. Vader was still the antagonist, aggressively trying to stop our band of rebel heroes. And Yoda was the wise and powerful force that guided them. The Razorcrest did not need to be in the series for fans to continue the story. It lived on, through the imaginations and in the displays of collectors around the world. But first, Hasbro needed to deliver it. Hasbro originally estimated it would begin shipping the TVC Razorcrest at the end of 2021, a year after the Razorcrest was put into production. This timeline followed the one set by the first HasLab project, Jabba Sailbarge. However, by the first week of September, the company announced that due to the large number of orders, production would take longer than expected, and that shipping would be delayed until early 2022. During the first week in February, those who placed pre-orders received notifications from FedEx that their Razorcrest would be shipped to them and would arrive sometime within the next week. On February 8th, Hasbro released an unboxing video. Over the course of a half hour, Chris Reif unboxed the Razorcrest in a Hasbro office room. Chris Reif here at Hasbro from the Star Wars team. You've seen me online, we've talked before. But I want to do something special for you since Razorcrests are shipping any second now. You might already have them, depending on when you watch this video, but we are recording it in advance to give you a little sneak peek at what you're going to get in the mail. So what we're talking about, what's going to show up is this. So here's how you're going to get it. It's going to come in a box like this. Uh, we'll get right into it, give you a quick unboxing of what this thing looks like. So. You can see all the goodies and get a look at it with me in real time here. So, just working my way through this thing, hack away here. All right, so the first look will be at the Razor Crest in there. Seems like a good way to get it out. There we go. All right, so, Razor Crest. This is awesome. So, it's a quick look at the box here. So, I've got lots of these detail shots. I think you've seen these things online before. So, just in our close-up photos, but lots of great stuff to appreciate on here. Really cool vintage style art on the back. Some of the great character stuff. So, let's pop into this thing. 
Rife took eager collectors through the entire process of opening the package and assembling the crest. Stand's ready to go. We'll take the landing gear off here in a little bit and show you what it looks like on there, but that is one of my favorite additions we did to this thing. I've got one sitting on the coffee table at my house, and it is, I smile every time I walk by it. So, but let's get into the ship a little bit. So this thing, obviously, it is a beast. So much detail all over the place. And look at this thing. So, like I said, every time I look at this, there's, there's little things I remember from, from the development phases of this. Adding little things. So here, let's just, we can pop off panels. So just run through and pop off everything we can. So you can get a good look at how it all comes apart. So if we pull top off of the skate pod, skate pod comes out of there. That can open up. So store your finger in there. There's all that great detail down in there, all weathered, all nasty. It's fantastic. Uh, top the whole top off. On the back side there are where your your carbonite blocks can snap into these little hangers. So they'll they'll click in like that and then you can slide them around, store them off on the side. And he shared some of the play and display parallels to the on-screen adventures. Open up our little Grogu here. So be a little careful with him. He's got his uh little soup bowl in here as well. It's taped in so it won't just fall out, but just don't forget you've got that in there as well. In his, uh, his pram, comes on its little stand. So it's got a couple little inserts in here just to hold pieces in place. Little plastic thing, but you can take him, this is the craziest scale difference ever. So, tiny little Grogu, ride around in his pram, but pram cover. And we've got our, our off-world Arvala 7 Jawa here. So, stand him up. He's got that, but he, he comes with, with his Kukri knife and his, uh, a couple little Suka eggs, one open blasters so have him running off over here with some some landing gear maybe but uh, let's see what else we've got the we've got this little container that in one of the episodes you see it just sitting in the cargo hold but then mando ends up modifying it once a pram is lost so you can actually take your little grogu and stick him in there and it's designed so that you can take the stand from the pram and pop that up into the bottom. So if you want to recreate that scene with that flying around, you can even do that. Fun little feature. There's also a scene in the show where Grogu is sitting in that pram in the seat behind Mando. So we can do, we can do all that sort of stuff too. And Rife expressed his excitement to see the Razor Crest finally in the hands of children and collectors everywhere. Man, just so much fun stuff. I want to I wanna spend days talking to you guys, but you're going to have them in no time. So I'm really excited to see what everybody does with their Razor Crests. I want to see photos. Please, please post photos. Send them to Pulse. Like, in, just have fun. Like, it's a toy. We love it. And I spent so much time working on this thing with the team. We all are, are close to this thing and really love the, how it turned out. So super happy. 
and hope you guys will enjoy them as well. I hope this chapter of the history of Hasbro's HasLab has given you a fuller appreciation of the Razorcrest. It is impressive on screen and in the hands of collectors, and I've really enjoyed charting the path that Hasbro has taken with its crowdfunded offerings. The sail barge was a success. The Razorcrest reached new heights. But would the next HasLab project be a hit with fans and collectors? Or would Hasbro have its first Star Wars failure? Stay tuned for a future episode of the history of Hasbro's HasLab on Star Wars, prototypes and production.